Hello, and welcome to class session number two of my Tolkien course. Today's class begins our discussion of Tolkien's essay on fairy stories. Before you start, make sure that you've read the first half of the essay, everything up to the section labeled fantasy. Today we're going to be talking about starting on fairy stories. Uh, the, on fairy stories, this essay is the closest thing that Tolkien ever wrote to a literary manifesto. Uh, it's the best theoretical discussion of fantasy literature that I know of. Um, he delivered this originally as an address at the University of at, at St. Andrews uh, in Scotland in March 1939. Uh, so first of all, notice the date there. The Hobbit was first published in 1937. So in 1939, this was the, the, the Hobbit has come out and he has recently started to work on The Lord of the Rings. He started the process in 37-38 of writing The Lord of the Rings, which wouldn't be published for another 20 years. Um, and so, so this, is, this is an interesting moment uh, in the scope of Tolkien's career when he's thinking about, about these issues. And one of the things that makes it particularly interesting is that as he is sort of transitioning from The Hobbit to The Lord of the Rings, one of the things that he's thinking about is a change in audience. Um, that is, The Hobbit, of course, is intended for and written for a juvenile audience. He's writing for children. In The Lord of the Rings, he's not writing for children, always not exclusively for children. Um, and in fact, he had just written in 1938 uh, an interesting letter to, to his publisher, um, who had been asking him about his progress on the sequel to The Hobbit, which is how he thought of The Lord of the Rings for a long time. How's the sequel coming? Uh, the publisher would say, and he was concerned about it. Uh, you know, he said, I, I feel like the new story is forgetting children, is the phrase that he used. And he says, I, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid it might... It might prove unsuitable. He was worried about it. Um, and in part, of course, he's worried about the expectations. But so again, it's interesting. Right at this time when he's thinking through and when he's delivering on fairy stories, one of the things that he himself is doing is thinking about expanding his own fantasy writing from a juvenile audience to adults. Is it going to be suitable? You know, so in one sense, you could say that on fairy stories addresses the larger question is fantasy literature, in fact, suitable for an adult audience? Um, that was clearly an issue that was on his mind. Now, he also says, by the way, that one of the reasons that the, the, the tenor of the book changes uh, from The Hobbit to The Lord of the Rings is that he was always writing, his, his immediate audience for his writing was always his own children who were growing up at the time. So uh, they just, when he was writing The Hobbit, his children were much younger than they were when he was writing The Lord of the Rings. And so that's one of the reasons uh, he said that his own uh, sort of emphasis and style changed. So in thinking about on fairy stories and what he talks about here, there are several, lots of different questions that he asks and lots of things that we should think about. Um, first, I want, us to, I want to talk about fairies in general and what he says about fairies. And one of the first and most striking things that you might notice, um, and Tony, you commented on this in the forum, was there are many points in this essay where he plainly and explicitly leaves open the possibility that fairies exist, in fact, right? That he's not just talking about made-up stories, but that, that there really are elves out there. How do we understand that? I mean, for instance, uh, there's a story, I don't know if it's true or not, but there's a story that uh, the actor 
Bela Lugosi, uh, who, whose most famous role was Dracula in that, in, in, in that early uh, film. You know, the guy who, 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 who defined vampire elocution for the rest of time. Right now, everyone who does Dracula tries to sound like Bela Lugosi, right? I mean, that's, just not, that's how Dracula talks, because that's what Bela Lugosi did, right? I mean, this was the role of his career. Um, and there's a story that later in his life, as he was aging, he began to get kind of delusional and would dress up as Dracula all the time and like began to like believe that he was Dracula and you know that basically he began to sort of lose the boundary between you know the 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 make-believe life of his acting and and the real life so I mean is that what's going on with Tolkien here right I mean the guy is so invested in stories about elves and elf stories that he's now thinking that maybe they're true and if not what is happening Chris, what do you think? I almost felt that he wasn't, the reason he wasn't denying their true existence is because even if he didn't truly incorporate them into his belief, he knew that others could or would or maybe chose to because of what, what he wrote. Because he didn't want, I mean, the whole, the whole point of this thing is saying that he doesn't want people to lose what they already have just because the world's conforming to a certain direction. It is true that he would be thinking about other people's beliefs. I don't think he would have been thinking too much about people's beliefs based on what he himself wrote. Whose beliefs would he have been thinking about as he was writing about elves and fairies? In part, though, though even there with his own children, with, with his immediate audience, especially his, juven, his juvenile audience, uh, remember the point that he makes about saying it's not, it's not that when you're telling children fairy stories you're like trying to trick them into thinking that fantastic things happen in the real world, right? Um, you shouldn't be, uh, in the phrase he uses, trading on their credulity, right? Um, that, that they'll accept crazy stories just because they don't know they're crazy yet, right? And then later on, when they learn, it's like discovering there's no Santa Claus, right? Sorry, I hope I didn't spoil it for anybody. <laughs> but anyway, uh, it's, it's, you know, and, and that, that, that's basically like the relationship with fairy stories. And once you learn that magic doesn't really happen in the real world, then you move on to real literature, right? He says that that's not uh, what the relationship with... Kids know the difference between fantasy and reality. Um, Elise? Well, I was kind of thinking about his own beliefs because... He says that the writers are the creator of the world, they need to believe what they write. And he also says, like even when he was a child reading stories, he only read the ones that he believed in and really interested in him. So if he didn't believe it, then he couldn't write it. Right, and I think one way in which that, that comes in is certainly his attitude, his whole tone. The way he talks about fairy and fairies and elves in this essay is always with respect. Right? And, he, and he talks about the, the importance of bringing humility to this kind of thing. So, I mean, it's... And, and the thing that he clearly has least patience with uh, in the modern adult treatment of fairy tales is what he calls that sort of sneering, right? Uh, exchanging knowing winks over the heads of the innocent children who are listening to the stories. That he has no patience for. So, it's true that to some extent it's just... To, to, part of the art is investing in it, right? And therefore, treating it with respect, it, it would be hard to invest much in stories about fairies, and it'd be hard to write an essay in which you're endorsing investing stories about fairies, and in which you also spoke about fairies with scorn, 
right? And so clearly he is steering clear of that. And I do think that that's important. Marta? Um, yeah, I definitely think so, too. And what I kind of got out of it is that um, he talked about the, the desire for fairy quite a bit. Yeah. And that desire is definitely real. So just because that desire exists, that lends a kind of reality to fairy. Yeah, that there is. And this is something that he'll come back to in a lot of places. That desire, those desires are real. Um, and remember, in, the, in some of the places where he talks about fairies in, in this way, where, which clearly leaves open the possibility of their existence, he also leaves open the possibility of their non-existence. And, and says that uh, it doesn't actually, in some things, it doesn't actually matter whether they are real or not. But the desire that, those, that the stories about them raise is real. Um, one other thing, though, that I would emphasize, and this uh, some of you who have taken medieval literature can speak to, people in the Middle Ages really did seem to believe that fairies existed. Um, we don't understand fairies in the Middle Ages, but we, you know, a- accept the idea, at least the theoretical idea, um, that, they, that they exist, and that if you're not careful, you, know, you could find yourself you know, riding through the woods one day having an encounter that you can't really explain. And it may be uh, that you've encountered fairy, you've wandered into fairy, or that you've encountered an elf, uh, or been, uh, been enchanted by an elf. One of the things that he's doing in talking about fairies this way is avoiding what he and C.S. Lewis, I think it was C.S. Lewis who invented this term, but they both use it, and both use the phrase and, and strongly emphasize the idea. He's avoiding chronological snobbery. Again, that, that impulse to say that since time has passed, you know, and, and when we're looking back at the things that people historically believed, we modern people tend to look down on them. This, by the way, of course, is a logical consequence of that worldview that I described last time. Right? If you believe, as modern people do, that things are getting better and better and people are getting smarter and smarter, then the inescapable conclusion, whether you formulate it explicitly in your mind or not, is that we are much smarter than those people. Right? If, if we're smarter than people, than people 100 years ago, we're five times smarter than the people 500 years ago. And the people 1,000 years ago, man. Right? So when people who lived that long ago say things that sound to us strange or silly, our impulse, which you have to guard really carefully against, uh, that is, if you don't guard carefully against it, you'll do it without thinking about it, is to be condescending towards them. Um, oh, they believed in fairies. Oh, isn't that quaint? Obviously, that's not true. We wise, sophisticated, modern people know for a fact that that can't be true. First of all, we do. On what evidence? We don't know that. Our attitude has changed. Our perspective has changed. In fact, many of the same phenomenon still occur. But our culture describes them differently. If somebody nowadays were wandering through the woods, saw a bright light, uh, and had a strange experience that they can't explain and come home, how are they going to explain it? Maybe, maybe perhaps they'll even disappear for a little while and then come back and be like, I was taken to a different place and strange things happened to me. Right? I, we have one cultural way of dealing with that concept, right? The, the Middle Ages had another. If a medieval person were to be here, and listening to tales of, of UFOs and, 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 and alien abduct, abductions, I bet they would have to fight really hard not to be condescending towards us. <laughs> right? What's the difference? Again, so so that, that's, part, that's part, I think, of what Tolkien is doing there as well.
the modern conception of fairies, of course, he, he, he talks about this and how we, we have to kind of guard against this as well. Um, one of the problems about talking about fairies and fairy stories is uh, that the word fairy just evokes a concept which is fundamentally unlike uh, the traditional idea of the fairy. Uh, what's the... Mary, I think you hit it right on... I think it was you who hit it right on the head in the forum. What do we picture immediately when you say the word fairy? The image that pops in your head is? Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell, exactly. Tinkerbell is like the paradigmatic fairy of the modern world. Um, that's why what, what Tolkien calls pigwidgeonry, right, based upon the, the poem by, by Michael Drayton, which I think Tolkien would be delighted to find nobody reads anymore. Uh, I, I call Tinkerbellism. It's, it's, the, same, it's the, same, the same kind of idea. And by the way, how many of you have watched Peter Pan in the last five years? How disturbing is like the sexual sub-theme with Tinkerbell? <laughs> I mean, I, we just watched that with my son like a, a couple months ago, and I was horrified. Uh, it is deeply disturbing. Anyway, I, I don't even want to go there. Uh, it's worse than the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so anyway, that, but the point is, this idea of, of, of fairy is almost entirely irrelevant to the traditional concept of fairies and the traditional concept of fairy. I remember when um, uh, a couple years back. Uh, Liam Daly wrote his thesis on fairies in medieval literature, uh, in Middle English poetry specifically. I remember, he and I had this conversation where he's like, okay, so what do I call them? Because I can't just say fairies or else people are going to think, you know, it's like the thesis about Tinkerbell. Uh, <laughs> and, it, you know, we had a hard time. We, we, we didn't really come up with a good solution for this. Um, notice, how does he explain this change? He says he can't really point to the moment, but he has a general idea. At what point in time, historically, does Tolkien theorize that the concept of fairies change? You remember? Jordan, what is it? I believe it was post-Shakespeare. Shakespeare has a big impact on it. Uh, it's hard not to think of, of A Midsummer Night's Dream now, right? And, and, and Shakespeare, although, you know, Puck and Oberon and Titania and A Midsummer Night's Dream, they're not Tinkerbell, they're not pigwidgeon, but they're, but they're like it. There's, there are some elements of fairy, with a capital F, in A Midsummer Night's Dream. But, but it's also, it also has, has one foot uh, in, in, in the Tinkerbell world. Uh, Puck talks about hiding behind cow's lips. And, uh, and, and, and I mean, that's, that's not... And of course, on the stage, the actors playing the humans and the, and the fairies are more or less the same size, right? Um, but within the, the sort of fictional frame, based upon the speeches that they say, we thought that that's not true or not always true, right? Uh, Jordan, go ahead. I found a really good passage, I think, regarding the reality of fairies that basically says whether or not they're real, they exist in my interpretation, which is he's talking about how Max... Mulu? I'm not yeah. sure. There's an umlaut, so. Yeah. He says that mythology is a disease of language, and he's like, no, that's not true. D- then he describes that the what? mind that thought of light, heavy, gray, yellow, still swift, also conceived of magic that would make heavy things light and able to fly, turn gray lead into yellow gold, and the still rock into swift water. He's saying that regardless of whether they are real, the boundaries of our language include them, and they're conceptually existing because of that. They are included in our lexicon. They are possible 
for us to conceive, and there's, there's a part of our mind that acknowledges them regardless of whether they exist in any physical, tangible form. They're there. Yeah, and another thing that I would say, building on that, is that at the very least, they exist as a theoretical ideal. That is, fairies and what they do is, in one sense, merely the perfection of that which humans attempt to do. Right? That fairies are, in Tolkien's conception, artists. They're not magicians, they're artists. And what fairies can do to people is not the power of the stronger over the weaker. It is the working out of the art of the ultimate artist. And that all fantasy writers, especially, aspire to elven craft. And in as much as their stories succeed, they get to be kind of like the kinds of things that elves can do. So in that sense, they would exist as a theoretical ideal, uh, even if they didn't uh, actually uh, historically exist. Um, one brief note that I'd like to make, he talks about the OED and how the OED misdefines uh, fairies. Um, I, I looked it up. Uh, you know, if you look it up now, what you'll find um, is both progress and not progress. <laughs> progress in that now, the, prime, the first definition of the word fairy is elfland. Um, that's progress. That's a good thing. However, the Definition that the wrong definition that he gives and criticizes for fairy, the one about diminutive uh, things, is is still definition number four. Uh, and worse, the misquotation of Gower that he spends so, such a long time is still there, uh, exactly as it was as he criticized it. They still give the misquotation of Gower as the primary quotation supporting that definition. Um, so again, both been some progress and some non-progress in the OED front. Um, but the process that he describes when talking about the OED definition, talking about the shift from fairies as they are, fairies as they are in Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, fairies as they are uh, in, in Lanval, fairies as they are in the King Arthur stories, to Tinkerbell, to Pigwidgeon, uh, and even to Puck, uh, is the process that he calls rationalization, right? Let's not... We're not comfortable saying that fairies are magical creatures who can become invisible and thus disappear. Instead, they're very, very small, and so by an act of finesse and dexterity can just hide behind a flower, right? They don't really turn invisible. They're just wily, right? Um, The historical point that he connects this shift in the understanding of fairies to um, is around the time of Shakespeare, but he doesn't point to Shakespeare as the cause. Uh, the, the point is the, the time of the voyages of discovery, right? When the globe is being circumnavigated, when the new world is being discovered, that's when, approximately, when this, this change in the idea of fairies happened. Um, you see the implications of that? It's not a question of the increase of information, Again, we don't disbelieve in fairies now because they have been disproven by science. We disbelieve in fairies now because our attitudes have changed, because our outlooks have changed. Um, It is not that now we have explored the whole world and therefore we know we have found the mysteries that there are to be discovered and therefore we can prove that none of these other mysteries exist. Well, maybe... In 1600, we know more about the New World than we did in 1500. But we don't know the forests any better. And goodness knows now we don't know the forests any better than they did back in 1300. 
right? Um, it's, it's, it's more of a question of attitude. And that attitude, the attitude which leads to the small fairies of, of cowslips and bluebells uh, is an attitude which Tolkien is very skeptical of at all times. And it's that one of mastery. We know what's really there. We are masters of the world. We are masters of information. We know what is possible and what is not possible, and therefore we can assert with boldness that which is not possible and that which is possible. There is a kind of arrogance, a kind of dominance being asserted there that he links to, the, by implication, to the attitude that underlies the voyages of discovery as well. We have conquered the world now because we have circumnavigated it. We can now put it on a map. We, in this intellectual sense, we own it now, right? Um, and therefore, now there's no room for it in it for fairies because always the medievals believed in fairies, but they had no firm place for them in their worldview. They didn't know what they were. They didn't know how to categorize them. And that might not sound like a big deal, but the more medieval literature you read, the more you realize that's an enormous big deal. There's nothing that people in the Middle Ages like more than categorizing things. They have a very, very neat and orderly worldview. They love to have things in their place. Um, and they can tell you everything's status and how it's related to everything else and, and, and what those come from. But they had no place for fairies, and they didn't seem to care about that. Uh, we don't want to talk about that or think about that at all. Um, but again, that's because of a change in our attitude, not a change in our information. I'm thinking it's time for some acceleration here. Fairy, uh, well, I'm never going to get through this whole story, this, this, whole, uh, this whole essay. Now, of course, he differentiates between the, uh, the word fairy as meaning the fairies, uh, and the capital F, fairy. Right? And he says that's the primary definition of the word. This is the thing the OED is now doing right, giving you as the first definition, fairy, the land of the fairies, elf land. What does he tell us about fairy? That F-A-E-R-I-E, fairy. What do we know about it? How does he talk about it? Well, what does he say? Well, it's not just that it's like the, the home of the fairies, like the, the physical beings that are fairies. It's like the home of everything magical or like uh if you are enchanted you go there yes yeah yeah good and it's it's a little bit confusing i mean it's a little bit hard to see the boundaries of fairy are really uncertain and in fact much of our world what we call our world is in it too and i i I think that's a really important point um Look at page 38, near the top of the page. Fairy contains many things besides elves and fays, and besides dwarves, witches, trolls, giants, or dragons. That is, fantastical creatures, right? Magical stuff. It's, he says, you, not only can you not say this is the place where elves live, you can't even say this is the land of magical things. Anything which, you know, which is magical and doesn't exist in the real world, that's from fairy. It holds the seas, the sun, the moon, the sky, and the earth. And all things that are in it, tree and bird, water and stone, wine and bread, and ourselves, mortal men, when we are enchanted. Uh, you will notice the, it seems, quite conspicuous inclusion of wine and bread uh, in that list. 
Um, yeah, if, if, you're not, if you're not thinking of communion, you should be. Um, but anyway, that, by the way, is almost as explicit a religious reference as Tolkien makes. Um, he doesn't talk about it much explicitly, um, but it informs everything that he does. He will compel himself, and you can almost feel the compulsion he is placing upon himself and his discomfort as he does it. He will explicitly talk about Christianity and Christian themes at the very end of this essay, one of the only times he does it in his published writings. That's not how Tolkien rolls. But you can, it's, it's very... Uh, as I said, it informs everything that he does. And sometimes uh, he, 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 he gives a clearer indication, and that's one, that's one small example. But anyway, all of these things are in, are in fairy, are part of fairy. They, as he points out, fairies, are more natural than we are. Right? They can't be called supernatural. Do you understand what he means when he says, we are the ones who are supernatural to them? You understand what that means? Is we, are, we human beings are more supernatural than fairies are. Why? I mean, they're magical. They have magical powers we don't. How are we more supernatural, Shanta? Um, because uh, as time has gone on, man has rejected nature. Yeah, good. In that way, we, are, we have become, uh, to use a word that some of the elves in the Silmarillion will use later on, we have become unfriends to nature, right? Um, we are not lined up with nature. And that's true. Sort of by alignment, uh, we are... Well, that's, that's not supernatural quite so much as anti-natural or unnatural in, in, in one sense of that word. Um, what does it mean to be supernatural? To be above nature and be able to sort of move beyond it. Yeah, something which is, which is above and beyond nature, right? And he says the elves are not supernatural. They are quintessentially natural. Um, they are essentially connected with nature itself. By contrast, human beings do transcend nature. How? What about us transcends nature? Ah, uh, it's part of nature. We make it out of nature. Right? Make it out of natural things. No, transcend all of nature. Not anything that we do in what we are. This thing do being made in God's image. Our souls. We have souls. We are super... Uh, you are not your body. You are your soul. You, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. Okay? Human beings die and go somewhere else that is not nature. Elves, apparently, don't do that. Okay? Um, every human being is, in part and in some sense, supernatural. See what I mean? Like, again, the Christian worldview. It's, it is the baseline uh, of... of and, and without an understanding of it, a lot of the things that Tolkien says just aren't going to make all that much sense. Um, that is the sense, the primary sense, in which we are supernatural to, to, to elves. What's a fairy story? Yeah, Tony? Uh, when men adventure into the world of fairy. Yeah, fairy stories are not stories about fairies primarily. They're about what happens to people when they encounter fairy in some way. Um, what does he exclude from fairy stories? What categories of stories does he exclude? Chris? Like, uh, traveling tales. Yes, traveler's tales. Like Gulliver's Travels is one that he talks about. Liz? Beast fables. Beast fables, yes. Things like the nun's priest tale, like the wind in the willows. Stories which are 
in which only animals take part, uh, and in which the animals, they're not really animals, as he calls their zoomorphic people. Um, it's, they're, really, they're really not stories about animals. By reading The Wind in the Willows, you won't learn anything about the internal life of moles, right? You'll meet a character named Mole, and it's very cool, but it's not, it's not really about moles, right? Or toads. Toads aren't all like that. Right, only some. Yeah. Also, anything that's in a framework of a dream. Yes. Yes. Dream visions. Dream visions are the other thing. Um, dream visions don't work. Now, you see, what's, what do those things all have in common? What is the basic principle that he's establishing there? They obviously can't happen. Yeah. The, the things that happen in dream visions obviously can't happen. right? But in one sense, they can, though. Right? Well, like in dreams. If you put the dream frame, what have you done to your fantastical story? You tell a fantastical story within a dream, what happens? Laura, what happens? You've discounted it completely. You said that didn't really happen. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Anybody can have a fantastical dream, right? There's a huge difference between, hey, like, you know, I dreamed about a dragon and imagining, you know, a world in which dragons really exist, right? Um, at the end of the day, all three of those kinds of stories, perfectly fine, good stories, nothing wrong with any of them. Um, he's, he's, you know, he emphasizes, it's not that I dislike these kinds of stories, uh, but they're not fairy stories. They're just people stories. They're just about people. They have nothing to do with fairy. Travelers' stories can include marvels, but they're real marvels, right? Made marvelous only by distance, either of space or time. Fairy stories instead are about the realization of pri- the, 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 the fulfillment of primordial desires, or even more than the fulfillment, the stirring up of primordial desires, right? What are some of the primordial desires that he describes? Some examples that he gives? Eve, do you remember? Yeah, one of them was the um, want to commune with other animals. Good, like yes. Other creatures. Yes, to hold communion with other living things. Yes. That is not just to have a story in which, you know, bears and, or like, you know, badgers, moles, and toads walk around and talk like human beings and drive motor cars and drink wine, but actually have a story in which a human being can communicate with actual frogs and actual badgers. Go ahead. Yeah, and then he says the other one was to survey the depths of space and time. Yes, to survey the depths of space and time. Yeah, yeah. Good, good. The realization of imagined wonder is the baseline desire that fairy stories stir up and in part fulfill, right? It's not just that you want to think. It's, it's just, you don't just want to have a dream about this. The, the desire, that primordial desire, is to really see it. It might be uncomfortable if you really did, as when he talks about dragons, for instance, right? Actually seeing a dragon in the flesh, not very comfortable, but he desired dragons, right? He sort of wished that they were real. Now, he moves on from fairy stories in particular and says a lot of things which just have to do about stories and storytelling in general. There are two really important metaphors that he uses when talking about stories and storytelling uh, that I want to make sure to draw attention to. One, he does in passing, he doesn't spend a lot of time talking on it, but he talks about, he refers to a story as a leaf from the tree of tales, Remember that? What are the implications of that metaphor? 
What is he suggesting about stories? By calling a, any given story a leaf from the tree of tales. Louise? Um, that I kind of took it like, you know, stories like Good, good. I, I think that there, there are two things there that, uh, that in what you said that I think are really important. One, it's not original, right? It's not, when you write a story, it's not really coming from you. Um, there's this, you know, the, the, the metaphor suggests there's this tree out there, right? Beyond you. You're describing one of its leaves. But, you know, don't think that you are the master and source of this story, because you're not. And the second thing, as you say, is the interconnection among them, right? All stories are just different leaves on this same tree. Um, all stories, in some way, are related among, with each other. Yeah, Well, By the same token, you can never tell all the stories. Right. Because even though, that, even though you're not telling the first story, you can't tell all of them, because... They'll fall off, and then they'll go back, and then they'll fall off, and then they'll go back. Yeah, uh, uh, every spring, leaves return, and not only is every oak tree different from every other oak tree, every leaf on every oak tree is different from every other leaf, right? But yet, they're still oak leaves, right? Identifiably oak leaves. And, of course, one of the implications here, you're writing a story, there's a lot of pressure. He'll talk about this explicitly in the, in, the, in, the, in the latter part of the essay. Think of all of the pressure that is put on you and that you put on yourself if you are a writer to do something original, something that's not been done before. You can't do that. But of course, notice how the, in, the metaphor of a leaf applies to that. Well, your story is a leaf, just like every other story. It's not going to be original, but each leaf... No two leaves are exactly alike. You don't have to try. I dare you. You can't possibly write the same story that somebody else wrote. You can't help but be original. Because it's yours. It's you. Just as every leaf, not only every, but even, you know, Will, as you say, when the leaves fall and grow again, the leaf that replaced the leaf that was there last year isn't the same as last year's leaf. Right? It's like fingerprint. They're all different. They're all different. So that's... Another, I think, important implication of that metaphor. The other one, Elise, is the one that you talked about, or that, that you mentioned, the cauldron of story, the soup. Now, when he talks about the soup, the way he brings that in is talking about, you know, in, you should be enjoying the soup, not trying to, to analyze the bones of the ox that was boiled down to make the soup, right? What does he mean by this? How is he wanting us to apply this, this metaphor of the soup the difference between the soup and the bones. He explains that he's, he's adapting that quote out of context and explains that, right? Brittany, what is it? Uh, it's kind of like you, you're enjoying the story of the fairies, but you're not asking, are these fairies actually real? Are, you know, is the whole monster under the bed thing? Yeah, yeah, good. It's, you have to, when you're reading a story, you have to be experiencing a story. It's not that analysis of soup is an illegitimate thing. 
maybe for some reason, like you're some kind of professional soup scientist, right? <laughs> you know, you're like a chemist who specializes in the composition of soup. I don't know why you would do this. The metaphor really kind of falls apart when we start doing it, but anyway, I'll, I'll run with it anyway, right? You might take samples of soup back to your lab and break them down and study patterns and all these things, and that would be itself a perfectly fine inquiry, right? But that's not what happens at the dinner table. And if you're doing that at the dinner table, you're not eating soup. <laughs> at least you're not enjoying soup, certainly. Right? Um, this is a part of his emphasis. And this is one of the most important things for him in stories and, and, and in dealing with stories. He, he comes back again and again. You have to read them as stories. Don't just analyze them. That doesn't mean don't think about them. You can criticize the soup as soup, he says. By all means, taste the soup and say, wow, this is better than this other soup. Here's what I love about this soup. But don't just spend your time thinking. So you know, there, there are a few instances that he gives. Don't treat the stories like they're just quarries for information. What does he say, for instance, about uh, the Red Riding Hood story? Remember, like, folklorists' discussions of the, 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 the derivation and distribution of the, uh, 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 or dissemination of the Red Riding Hood story? Kelly, remember that? Um, they're not the same story because they're fundamentally different in the outcome, and that makes them each unique in their own special way. Exactly. He talks about folklorists who will describe two different versions of Red Riding Hood and say it's the same story. When one of them has a happy ending... Uh, she gets rescued from the wolf, and the other one has a sad ending. She gets eaten by the wolf, right? And he's like, well, okay, I mean, yes, obviously these are derived from the same source, but they're completely different stories. It has a huge impact whether or not she gets eaten by the wolf at the end. It's a completely different story. So if you find yourself saying those two are the same story, that means you're not paying attention to it as a story. Similarly, uh, remember what he says about Iphigen- about. Iphigenia, the name I always have a hard time pronouncing, daughter of Agamemnon. When you read the story of how in order to calm the seas so that the Greek army could depart and sail to Troy, they had to pacify the gods by sacrificing the daughter of Agamemnon, Iphigenia. When reading that story, he says, what is the last question you should be asking? The last question you should be asking is, at this time in history, did they actually practice human sacrifice? <laughs> maybe, maybe not. If you're interested in that kind of thing, there's nothing wrong with that. But when you're starting to ask those questions, you are ceasing to read the story. You're ceasing to, ceasing to think of it as a story. You're ceasing to eat soup and starting to analyze the bones. There's also the archbishop and the banana peel. Both the archbishop and the banana peel are in the soup. He's like, it's not, about, it's not about one thing being attached to another, and it's not about drawing historical conclusions. Uh, notice that the, the line of reasoning that he is criticizing here is one that says, people make these particular claims. These, this, this story circulates about Charlemagne's mother. But that same story is similar to other stories that are told like in The Goose Girl from, from the Brothers Grimm. Therefore, since that story also appears in other traditional tales, it is untrue of Charlemagne's mom. And he says, that line of reasoning is illogical. 
And that, sadly, is where I experienced a little technical difficulty. I seem to have forgotten my power cable for my laptop. So at that point, with five minutes left in class, my laptop dropped dead. So I'll now just give you a little summary of what we talked about in the last three or four minutes. Uh, we only got so far as talking about how Tolkien described the experience of reading a story, specifically looking at his criticism of the term willing suspension of disbelief, how unsatisfied he was with that as a description of what happens when you are are reading along with a story. Um, his term, instead, the, the term that he prefers, is secondary belief. That is an, a, an important thing there, of course, is he's defining it in a positive instead of a negative way. It's not that you are just keeping yourself from disbelieving something. You're doing something positive. You are entering into a successful story imaginatively. You're giving it secondary belief. And that's secondary, of course, in contrast to the primary belief that you give to the primary world, which is the world around you. The primary world is the real world that surrounds us. The secondary world is a fictional world a world created by an author. Now, the last thing that we mentioned here, and we'll pick up with this idea next time, is that all stories, all stories, whether it's realistic fiction or fantastic fiction, relies upon creating secondary belief. All stories create a secondary world. It's the only way to tell a story is to create a secondary world. It doesn't matter if the story that you're, that you're telling is realistic. It doesn't even matter if the story that you're telling is true. You're creating, you're creating a secondary world, and your art, your story, is only going to succeed in so much as you draw people into that secondary world. Therefore, the only difference between fantasy literature and realistic fiction is the nature of the secondary world that you create. In realistic fiction, the rules of the secondary world that you're describing happen to be the same as the primary world. In fantasy, the, the rules of that secondary world happen to be different. Now, next time, when we look at what he has to say more about fantasy and the effect and the benefits of fantasy literature, we'll begin to look at some of the reasons, some of the implications that those differences have. But that's just about as far as we got. For the next class session, then, we're going to go through to the end of On Fairy Stories. We'll pick up with this discussion of secondary belief and also the concept of subcreation that he attaches to it. And then we'll move on, glancing at some of the things that he says about children, and then looking at what he calls the uses of fairy stories. Fantasy, recovery, escape, consolation. Please remember, if any of you are interested in pitching in or asking a question or, 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 or making a comment, um, please feel free to join our discussion on the discussion board. My students have begun posting, uh, and they've uh, you know, already put forward some really interesting reflections. Um, one of the things that I love about doing a discussion board like that is it gives us as a class the, the chance to talk about things that we don't always have time to talk about in class. Uh, for instance, I'm going to do no kind of justice at all in our discussions of on fairy stories to Tolkien's comments about children. Um, and I, I think that that section of on fairy stories is really, really great. Um, but we're just, I know we're not going to have that much time to talk about it in class. So I'm really glad to see that several of my students have already been posting on that subject on the discussion board. So anyway, feel free to come and join us. Everyone is welcome to join the discussion board. So that's all for today. Thanks for listening and Godspeed.